This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Liz Jackson, who is a professor of philosophy at Ryerson University. Liz works in epistemology, which is the study of knowledge, philosophy of mind, and philosophy of religion. Liz, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Jimmy. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited for today in our conversation. So you're a philosopher, and when I told people I was going to major in philosophy, it struck them as very impractical. <laughs> like, you don't, need a, you don't need a philosophy degree to work at Starbucks. So yeah. how did that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I definitely, uh, well, I'll talk about it in a second, but I encountered some of the same skepticism, so I totally get that. But um, I think it started off actually pretty early on, like as a child, I just had so many questions about everything. I was always just really interested. I remember uh, one time I wrote down like all my questions about like God and the world and and the universe and morality. And I wrote them all in this notebook and I should go and find that again. I think I was in like sixth or seventh grade. So I was pretty, you know, but even started before that when I was like four or five, I just had tons of questions. And I think, you know, now that I look back on that, I realize like, oh, I was interested in philosophy, but I didn't really realize that actually until college because in college, you know, like a lot of college students, especially in the US, flipping between majors and I was like oh do I want to study math do I want to study political science and I was trying to take all these classes and figure out what I wanted to major in um and I was like well, maybe philosophy I don't really know what that is <laughs> and then I took a class it was on moral and political philosophy and I was completely hooked and I was like this is like what I've been interested in my whole life. Like, I feel like I had like found my people, you know? Um, and so I declared a philosophy major pretty quickly. Um, and like you were saying, my parents, I mean, they were never like unsupportive, but they were like helping me out financially pay for college and stuff. And they were kind of like, are you sure? <laughs> um, and so I was like, no, 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 I really want to do this. I really want to do this. And they, they did trust me, which was cool. And they let me do it. Um, and then I was like, maybe I want to go to grad school. And then they were skeptical uh, again, but I ended up, I think once I kind of got into Notre Dame and showed them like, it's going to be funded and blah, blah, blah. Then they were much more on board, but ironically, actually looking back on that, that was, if anything, the more risky decision going to grad school. Like I actually encourage people going, you know, doing a philosophy major, I think actually can lead to like a lot of good careers, but going to grad school, you're giving a ton of your life um, and a ton of time when you could be earning a lot more money and stuff um, to a really risky, you know, thing where you may, may or may not get a job at the end. So anyway, but um, I ended up going to grad school and I guess why, how did I come interested in sort of epistemology and philosophy of religion was I think another part of your question. I actually got really hooked on epistemology early on. So I took a class on like early modern philosophy um, with one of my professors who actually also went to Notre Dame and he encouraged me to go there. Um, but I remember reading Descartes and just being really, really bothered by like Descartes skepticism and whether we could know anything. And, you know, Descartes says like really the one fundamental thing we can know for sure is I think therefore I am. And I, it just like really hooked me, really bothered me. Um, but I think really kind of started off my interest in epistemology and then, you know, it kind of led to other things and some of those things we'll talk more about here. Um, and then I think I just philosophy of religion, you know, as someone who was raised 
raised religious and, and still is religious, I think was kind of a natural sort of secondary interest for me. And so a lot of my work really still kind of falls into those two camps. The question of God is what originally got me interested in philosophy. Mm. Um, I used to go to church and I would wonder, you know, how, how do we, how can we know there's a God? I was very puzzled by that. And my, the first philosophy, philosophy I ever read was Descartes' Meditations on Verse Philosophy. And I remember bo both being very perplexed by it, but also feeling like I had the superpower where I could just go around and like prove everybody wrong. Like, you don't really know that you're not in the matrix. Or, you don't really know that. So it's really funny that we have that parallel, uh, that parallel story or part of our story. That's hilarious. I like, I like thinking of it as a superpower. I do think sometimes though, the tools that we give people in philosophy, they are really powerful and they can make people doubt and question things. They can make people force them to be clear about certain things, you know? So, so I like that a lot, but that is funny that, you know, there's a kind we kind of took this similar path and I guess we have a lot of similar interests now too. So maybe there's, you know, maybe that's part of the reason. I don't know. Um, yeah, but so you work in epistemology, which, like as I briefly said, is the study of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And particularly, you work on what you call belief credence dualism. I think most people know what beliefs are, right? To believe something is to hold it hold it uh, as true, to operate as if it's the case. Um, so if I believe it's going to rain in the morning, I might put an umbrella by like my car keys to remind myself. What is a credence? What is that? Yeah, that's a good question. So credences are um here, maybe i'll give i'll start with beliefs first to kind of give an example so you know you might believe it'll rain tomorrow you might also believe one plus one equals two um but your attitude towards both of those things isn't exactly the same right um you know you probably check the forecast there's maybe like a 90 percent chance of rain so you're pretty sure it'll rain tomorrow but at least if, if it's anything like where i live there's there's a, a chance the forecast could be totally off right um whereas one plus one equals two you know, I mean, depending on what you think about Descartes' arguments, you might not be 100% Cartesian, like certain of that, but you're pretty sure, you know? And so, you know, the thought is, well, just because you believe something, you could believe two things, but your attitude towards both of those isn't exactly the same. And so what some epistemologists have done is they've sort of modeled, they've modeled how confident you are in various propositions or statements on a scale from zero, where that means you're positive, 100% sure that it's false, to one, which means you're 100% sure that it's true. And so, like I was saying, you know, you could say your credence that it will rain tomorrow is 0.9. Maybe your credence, if I'm going to flip a coin, it's a fair coin, that it will land heads. That might be like 0.5. But your credence that one plus one equals two would be pretty close to one. And so the idea is that credence is sort of they're more specific. The way a philosopher would put it is they're more fine-grained. Um, they, they can kind of capture our various levels of confidence towards propositions that a simple belief can't. And sometimes that's important when, you know, we have to make a, a risky decision. We want to know, well, how sure are you about this? Um, you know, we really need to catch this bus. How sure are you this is the right bus? You might believe it, but is that, are you sure enough, you know? And so credences sort of give us this more specific tool that we can um, we can rely on. Does it help to clarify thinking about credences in terms of what I what I'd be willing to bet? Would that be one way to to sort of capture the intuition? People, that is the most um, common, I guess, uh, or like historically, especially that was what a lot of people they would say. You know, you can model credences as betting behavior. I think. You know, there are counterexamples to to this that I that at least I find kind of compelling. 
Um, so you could think about um, someone that just doesn't like taking bets. You could think about someone that um, for some reason cannot, cannot act in certain ways. So uh, Al Hayek has this silly example of these aliens that can't move or can't do anything and they just sit on their planet watching stars like come and go and the thought is that they can form various credences about like what stars will do various things or something I think he calls them the weather watchers uh but they can't they, they won't they can't take bets because they're like they're just like stuck in this position or something you know what I mean and so the thought is you can you can have various levels of competence even if you don't or you you're not even disposed to take those bets um that's kind of like a behaviorist way but at the, at the same time I think um, that that is a good heuristic for kind of determining our credences. Like how how would you act uh, in certain circumstances is, is often a very important indicator of credence. So as a definition of credence, I would probably reject it. But as like an indicator or like an important um, way to measure credence or a useful way to measure credence, I would say betting behavior is, is pretty helpful. So it seems like you've made an interesting abstract distinction between beliefs and credences. But I'm wondering what the sort of real life downstream implications are. Like if you were to explain this to somebody and they looked at you and they said, okay, who cares? <laughs> what do you say? Yeah, this is a great question. And it's actually, I've been thinking about different kinds of answers to this question. Um, but maybe I'll start with, well, yeah, I, I like this analogy a lot, which is it's the analogy with painting a wall. So when we paint a wall, we often use two different kinds of brushes. Um, we use a roller brush to sort of get the big parts of the wall. Um, it's a kind of an efficient way to sort of just get paint on the wall, right? But when we when mistakes are likely or when we need um, you know some kind of more accuracy, we'll use a detail brush, you know, around the corner or around the doors. And if we painted the entire wall with a detail brush, it might look good, but it would take forever, right? If we painted the entire wall with a roller brush, certain parts would be fine, but certain parts would probably not look very good. And I like this analogy because I think it kind of helps us see why it's useful to have an attitude that just kind of treats a proposition as true. Um, it's just kind of this attitude that just says, look, this thing is true. We can kind of hold that fix in our decision making. I think that's useful for various reasons. That's kind of what beliefs do. When you believe it'll rain tomorrow, you don't have to do a calculation involving the 90% chance of rain based on how bad it would be if you got wet tomorrow or whatever. You can just treat it as true in your reasoning. Um, but if the stakes get really high, it's, it's really useful to have some kind of attitude that tracks your exact level of evidence. Um, and, you know, maybe the rain example is a little bit trickier, but you can think about a case like the bus case, maybe, where let's say you're super late for a really important meeting and you got to make sure you get on the right bus. Then it's useful not to just say you believe this is the right bus, but how confident are you? Are you 90% sure or are you 99% sure? Maybe you need to be closer to 99 in order to actually act on it. So that's kind of one reason I think it's important is that they help us balance efficiency, but accuracy and reasoning. Um, but let me say like one other reason I think it's important too, and that has to do with this idea that beliefs let us take a stand on certain really important propositions, whether that's like a religious thing, like, you know, the existence of God or um, the truth of a certain religion or some kind of moral view. Maybe that's really important to you. A lot of people in philosophy are vegetarian. And I think that is a, a moral view that eating meat is wrong. That is really important to them. Um, or maybe some political view. You think some political party has the best thing uh, in mind for, for your country or something. 
So beliefs sort of let us take a stand and say, this thing is true. I'm representing the world as if God exists or as if eating meat is morally wrong. But we get counter evidence to, to our beliefs. Um, whether that's arguments that um, our beliefs are wrong, which can be, you know, stronger or weaker, and maybe for the strong arguments, we should give up the belief, but sometimes you get weaker arguments, or maybe people that disagree with you. And credences are useful because they can track our exact level of evidence for and against a proposition. So you might, you know, believe God exists and be 99% sure, and then you're like, oh man, the problem we hold, that's a really hard problem. So maybe your credence goes down to 0.8 or 0.7, but you can continue to believe that God exists at least to a certain point. So this is actually related to some of the work on faith that I do. So sorry if that was a lot, but I basically, there's like two, two main things. One is that they let us balance efficiency and accuracy in reasoning. That's like the paintbrush thing. And the other is that beliefs let us take a stand on certain things, but credences can track our exact level of evidence. I want to take a detour. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was thinking when you were talking about um, beliefs as much more crude and credences as a little more fine tuned. I like that analogy with the, the, with the brush and the roller. Um, and I'm wondering how this pertains to pragmatic encroachment. So pragmatic encroachment for people who don't know is this idea that the practical stakes of a situation um, has some bearing on whether or not we know something. So you know, whether or not something, I don't know, some political party holds a, a particular view, the stakes aren't very high in that, I mean, me getting that belief right. But if I've just built a bridge that kind of looks a little rickety, the stakes are really high for me crossing the bridge. And I might want to be really, really sure before I can claim that I know the bridge is safe. This seems to capture that, the, the, the distinction you made between, and treating beliefs and credences as, as distinct things. Oh, yeah. So absolutely. So actually, it's funny you bring this up because I think there is a there's a really important connection here. But I actually think what this picture of belief and credence ends up doing for us is actually giving us a way out of pragmatic encroachment while still kind of capturing what's intuitive about it. So here's let me start with a couple examples that I think can kind of illustrate this. Um, I think in general, it can be rational to have a belief, but not act on that belief. So here's a silly example, then I'll give a more realistic one. If I, you know, I, I, I believe I was born in Lawrence, Kansas. I'm very confident in that, like, unless my parents are lying to me and my birth certificate is faked, right? Um, but if someone gave me a bet and they said, I will give you $20 if you were born in Lawrence, Kansas. And if you weren't born in Lawrence, Kansas, you're going to be tortured for the rest of your life. Sorry, that's a little dark, but just some really, really, really bad thing, you know, will happen. Um, I would not take that bet right? It's just not worth it. Um, even though I'm very confident I was born in Lawrence. So the thought is, I still believe I was born in Lawrence, Kansas. <laughs> I just am not going to act on that belief because of this, because the stakes are so high, because I, especially the torture part, you know, um, that's a silly, more silly example, but you know, you can think about more realistic examples as well. You could, have a case where someone has very good evidence that their partner's, or sorry, their friend's partner is cheating on them. Um, and they might believe their friend's partner is cheating on them, but they know it would just wreak havoc to their marriage if they told their friend. And they want to be more confident before they go and tell their friend. They want to have more evidence. So they might have enough evidence to believe the partner's cheating, but not enough evidence to act on it. So again, I think they believe my friend's partner is cheating, but they want to be like, you know, they want to have a, a credence that is, is higher before they act on it. And so here's what these show in general, you can have a belief, 
but it's not necessarily automatically rational for you to act on it. And what I, what I see, why I think this is relevant to pragmatic encroachment is pragmatic encroachment cases are cases where the stakes are really high. And so it seems like we shouldn't act on the truth of a certain proposition. However, I think that doesn't mean we have to give up the belief. And so what's going on then? Well, we talked about belief and credence like a roller brush and a detail brush. And I think they're basically two tools kind of in our epistemic toolbox. And sometimes we need to pull one tool in and then pull out the other and vice versa in the same way we would when we're painting. Um, and so when you know, we go from a low stakes situation to a high stakes situation, we need to pull, we need to take our, our roller brush and kind of put that in our toolbox. That doesn't mean we throw it away or give it up. We still have the belief, but instead when we're reasoning, we pull out the credence and we reason with the credence instead. And I actually think this, what it does is it gives an explanation of what's going on in pragmatic encroachment cases. It changes what tool we should use, but it doesn't force us to, to throw the belief away or give up the belief. And so in that, when we should give up the belief depends on our evidence, not on our practical states. So that's kind of my view of pragmatic encroachment. Obviously it's very controversial and people disagree with it, but I think it's kind of intuitive too. I'm curious if you could give us an argument, your favorite argument or favorite piece of evidence for why you think God exists. And I'm not saying that God, the, the matter of God is wholly evidential, it's not, but presumably it's at least partially evidential. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I think one thing to say is that, and, and you know this, but maybe all your listeners wouldn't, you know, arguments and evidence aren't exactly the same thing. So sometimes you could have evidence for something, even if it's not based on an argument. So I look outside and I see the green lawn and I have evidence the lawn is green, but it's not like I gave myself an argument the lawn is green. I just saw it and I was like, oh, it's green, right? So I think, you know, some of the bits of evidence that I have, or, you know, some, some of my favorite bits of evidence for God's existence aren't arguments. So I guess I'll just start with one that isn't an argument and then I'll, I'll move down to some that aren't more arguments. But I think one sort of really basic reason I believe in God is because the world strikes me as, as designed. And so this isn't to say that, you know, evolution didn't occur. I, I do believe evolution occurred. Um, I also don't think you need to rely on some kind of intelligent design with the capital I and the capital D or some kind of like irreducible complexity argument for this. Um, I just think you go out and you look at the beauty of normal natural processes and these aren't violations of the laws of nature. These aren't miracles. Um, and I, I th this, to me, um, raises my credence, right? Or, <laughs> or uh, supports my belief that, that there is a creator. And so I think um, a lot of religious people want to try to say this has to be miraculous. Or this, scientists have to be wrong about this in order for it to be evidence for God. And I just don't really see it that way. I think that... Um, you know, the world can be evidence for God, even if everything that's happening is totally explainable by the laws of nature. But I do go out in the world and I, I see things and um, that to me is evidence that there's a creator based on just the beauty of, of nature. You kind of yeah. sound like you're channeling um, Alvin Plantinga a little bit. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I think too, so Alvin Plantinga argues that we have what's called a census divinitatis which is a part of our, our minds. It's a, it, he calls it a cognitive faculty. That just means it's kind of a part of our minds that is designed to form beliefs about God. And so Alvin Plantinga, I, it's weird that I just called him Alvin, um, Plantinga argues that um, when we go into nature, this part of our mind is, is activated 
And when it's functioning in the way that it should, it will uh, produce these beliefs about God. And, you know, I think you can add that to the story and there's something interesting and compelling about that. But obviously the existence of the census divinitatis is super controversial. It's difficult um, to see like how we would even verify it. Is it something we would verify through science? Is it something, you, you know, like, is it more of a philosophical thing? I mean, probably some of both, right? But it's not clear that we have empirical evidence for it. So you can add that in and I'm totally fine with that, but I don't want the piece of evidence to depend on that either. So. But yeah, totally. Very, it's a very planting and thing to say. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of one reason. <clears throat> I mean, another reason that's also like less of a like philosophical argument, but it's it's moving in that direction, is actually just from the beauty of the Christian story. Um, and I know like not everyone will resonate with this. So again, I don't want to say this is like um, going to be a universal thing that will convince everyone, but. In my opinion, there's something really beautiful about Jesus's life and death and resurrection and the fact that God became man and then died for our sins and sort of took that that penalty that we deserved. And there is also huge philosophical issues with how to work out all the details of all of that, including the Trinity and the incarnation and how all that fits together. But I do think there's something really compelling and beautiful about the story. Um, and so one way you can think about this as evidence is um, I believe in God because I believe in Christianity. There's something weird about that because you're kind of starting with this more complex thing and then moving to this simpler thing. But I think in some cases, when there's some story or some kind of system, I guess system is like a, a less beautiful way of putting it, but that fits together really well and has this elegance and this coherence and that it's really compelling to you, then you might start with the more complex thing and then, um, you know, kind of from that infer, infer some more simple propositions. I think some people feel this way about Kant. I honestly don't. But like Kant has this story of everything that has all this explanatory power. And then from that, you might, you know, infer like the truth of some of the things that Kant says. Maybe this is a bad example because all the people that don't like Kant are going to be like, what? <laughs> but I'm not trying to, you know, say that Kant was right about anything. But I just think there's something compelling about the story as a whole. And because that story is compelling, that, um, you know, entails that God exists. So that's kind of a, a second piece of evidence that I at least my, my belief that God exists is based on. Um, the third is a more philosophical argument. Um, so the third is that a lot of philosophers think that there are these things that are called abstract objects. Abstract objects are things like like numbers. So, you know, we have the concept of of, uh, you know, one plus one equals two. So one there's ones and twos and fours and fives um, and, you know, all this mathematical, all these mathematical objects that um, math has discovered. There's um, propositions, which are basically just statements, but a lot of people think they're not just sentences. They're kind of these non-linguistic things. That's a kind of complicated story, but happy to talk more about that, but I don't know if it's that important. Um, and also properties. So what is the thing that all red things have in common that makes them red? And so, you know, I think some philosophers think there's just these mind-independent objects, numbers, propositions, and properties just kind of floating around in some spaceless, timeless realm. <laughs> um, and then for some reason we can know about them or think about them or refer to them. And, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that's like 
a contradiction or totally untenable, but it is really weird when you think about it. It's a pretty weird view, but I'm convinced that we do need there to be these mind-independent things. I just think, look, if we can somehow ground these in God, like in God's thoughts um, or God's beliefs or something like that, or God's knowledge, I guess, that just seems a lot more plausible to me. So it can explain we can ground like numerical propositions in the way God thinks we same with, you know, somehow with propositions, properties, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, this might also help explain um, why we can know about them. Maybe they're somehow divinely revealed or God. Uh, one, one feature being made in God's image is that some of the knowledge of these objects are built into our minds as well. Um, and, and, you know, I think this might have the result that they're not causally so some people think abstract objects don't have causal relationships to us, but then the puzzle is how would we ever know about them? I've never been convinced that they're not causal. So, and I think this, this story would probably have that result as well. But I guess I just find it, it's some kind of best explanation argument. Like given there are numbers, properties, and propositions, God is the best explanation for these rather than some kind of like atheistic mind independent realm. So those are sort of three pieces of evidence for God's existence that I find compelling. I like some of the more traditional arguments too. Some of them I'm I'm more or less of a fan of, but maybe those are some kind of non-traditional reasons. I wanted to push you on your the first one you gave, the, the one that I commented sounded like you were channeling Plantiga. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the the sort of the world strikes you as designed, especially the natural world. You just get this impression that it's designed. And I'm wondering why you would think that was evidence for theism per se. Right, so why wouldn't we just, I mean, suppose I walk into um, a factory, I might get the impression the factory's designed because of its complexity or something, or its intricacy, its beauty. Um, but I might just get that impression just from complexity generally. Would you not expect that impression in say an atheistic universe? I'm just curious what your thinking is. And I'm imagining what an atheist philosopher would say back to that. Why would you expect anything different in an atheistic universe? Yeah, isn't that's a, that's a good pushback, and and it's helpful for me to think about this. And I guess one thing to say is, um, I think there's a difference between finding something personally compelling and then expecting it to convince the other side. And so I do acknowledge that some of this is based on sort of the the lens and the epistemic standards that that I take to things. Um, and 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 again, because it's not this rigorous argument, um, I think it's a lot harder to say. Like I think if you were making some kind of capital intelligent capital D design argument, it would be easier to say, here's my premises, here's my conclusion, and then checkmate atheist. And so I think mine is a lot simpler than that. I think there is something, I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah, I mean, of course, there are alternative explanations of the universe. And I'm not saying, I'm actually not one of those people that thinks atheists are irrational either. That is not, you know, not my position. I think appealing to some kind of atheist explanation could be rational given, you know, for some people given their evidence. Um, but I just think like, when you look at like the beauty of certain landscapes or, or the mountains or the sunset, it's just like, it's hard for me personally not to believe in the creator. And I do find that as really compelling evidence and almost like whether this would convince someone or not almost requires me to like get inside their head and kind of see see what's motivating them and how they perceive it and, 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 you know, what's driving them. So I think my answer is boring, which is like, yeah, I acknowledge this maybe won't convince everyone, but this, this is really compelling to me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's, this is helpful and I need to think through this more. So 
I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like you were making a distinction too implicitly between something being rationally compelling and something being rationally acceptable. Mm. I tend to think of theism as being rationally acceptable, but not necessarily rationally compelling. Speaking of evidence and belief, um, <laughs> a lot of people think that faith is belief about evidence. You hear this a lot. I even hear this in philosophers sometimes. Mm. Um, and I know that's very controversial in the faith literature. Like that's that statement of what faith is. Like believing something without evidence, um, it's not like a crazy view, but it's not the only one. Yeah. What should we think of that? I do think, yeah, I generally am not a fan of these kind these kinds of definitions of faith. Um, and I think, I mean, here's at least one reason. Um, I think faith is a really important part of a flourishing life in general. Um, and it's not just a religious thing, right? I think we can have faith in ourselves, faith in our, our spouses or partners, faith in our friends. We can have faith in like recycling or that there'll be world peace someday, you know, these ideals or whatever. Um, and I think, I mean, it depends on kind of what audience you're looking at. If you're looking at like people on YouTube, one thing that motivates them to say that uh, faith is belief, sorry, faith is belief without evidence is because of this like anti-religious sentiment that I think they have. And I think, you know, in response to, to them, I would just say there's all these non-religious examples of faith that are really important and probably important to you too. Um, in the philosophical conversation, I think it's a little more nuanced because not everyone thinks beliefs have to be based on evidence to be rational. And so it might not be an argument that faith is irrational. It might just be some, maybe some sort of nuanced, um, non, you know, an, a non-evidentialist position about faith. So I think I would kind of respond to the, both of those sort of differently. And I guess to the non-evidentialist, I would just say, I just think that's not true. I think faith is often based on evidence, even if it to some extent goes beyond the evidence. And so I might even just try to give like counter examples to that. And I wouldn't say I'm a full-blown evidentialist, but I do think that um, evidence is a really important part of what makes a belief rational. So, you know, the basic way I think about faith, maybe, and maybe this will kind of help people if I give them an alternative definition, um, maybe they'll find that more compelling is basically that it has four components. So faith has a belief-like component, a desire-like component. Um, faith involves a commitment. And then faith is steadfast in light of counter-evidence, or you could say it in some sense goes beyond the evidence. I think those are kind of related. And maybe I'll give a quick example of this. So if I have faith that your basketball team will win their upcoming game, um, I have some kind of belief-like state to that, whether I believe they'll win or I'm confident that they'll win, or I think there's a you know, decent probability that they'll win. I want them to win, right? I'm a fan of your team. I'm cheering for your team. It would be weird if I had faith that they would win, but I'm like cheering for the other team. That doesn't really make sense, right? Um, I have some kind of commitment to your team. Again, I'm a fan, or maybe it's a commitment that I have to you as a friend. And then to an extent that faith will be steadfast in light of counter evidence. So if one of your starting players get in, gets injured, um, I'll continue to have faith, just, just as an example. Maybe not in light of any amount of counter evidence, though, if all five of your starting players get injured or if you're down 40 points with two minutes left. Right. I should give up my faith that you'll win that game. Right. So the point isn't that faith is better the less evidence that you have or faith can't be based on evidence or wouldn't be based on evidence. It's just that faith in some sense, it's steadfast in light of counter evidence. And I think this is why 
the commitment component of faith and then the steadfast component of faith are both important because faith helps us keep our commitments over time. And it does that in part because it helps us be steadfast in light of counter evidence. So those last two components are related. So I think this, this definition of faith is, is pretty generally helpful, not just for, I think it applies to faith in God, but I also think it can apply to lots of other kinds of faith too. Yeah, it seems like uh, the way you laid out your definition of, or your conception of faith, applies a lot in relationships. Mm -hmm. right? Having faith that a spouse will be faithful, having faith that you can trust your parents' judgment, um, that your sibling is going to actually help you show up and move <laughs> after she promised she would, you know, that kind of thing, right? That the way you've described your conception of faith, it doesn't, I don't know how you'd even have relationships at all without something like that faith. Yeah, absolutely. I think faith is a super important part of relationships in general, especially, you know, close relationships with family and friends. Yeah, I think it, it can apply to other things as well. Like I said, we can have faith in certain ideals or faith in, um, you know, like I said, faith in humanity or faith that in world peace or, you know, whatever. But I think probably one of the most fundamental functions of faith is that it helps us um, with these close relationships and helps us continue in them, even if we get counter evidence. So absolutely. Well, the thought I was, the sort of the place I was going was then if, if you think of your conception of faith as an essential ingredient, especially in a close relationships, then God would just be a natural extension of that, mm -hmm. right? Like if I need it for all these other relationships too, it's really not that much different having faith in God than having faith in my mom or my wife or my best friend, right? Those don't, those don't seem that much. I mean, maybe it's a difference of degree, but not a difference of kind. Yeah, totally. I think, I think the same definition of faith applies to all of them. I think, you know, maybe some people wouldn't like this and they would want to say, well, there is something special about religious faith. And I think you could tell that story too, because the object of faith matters and, and could be different. But I still think the same the same structure, the same definition applies to both. I, I do work on hope, and I wanted to switch to hope. I've often, I've often wondered why we make such an emphasis, at least in certain religious traditions and certain times, on religious belief um, rather than uh, hope. So if you think of um, hope as a kind of faith or hope as a kind of commitment, um, I guess the question would be, can you be hopeful that God exists? Is that an appropriate attitude for a religious observer? Or is that going to fall short? You need faith to buttress um, your religious devotion. Yeah, I think this is a really great question. So I think I think that hope that God exists is is a is a great attitude to have. Um, and I think um, I think that for a few reasons. <clears throat> One is that I think faith and hope are really closely related, but I think there's one key difference, which is that faith um, requires, like I said, it has this belief-like component, whether that's like a straight up belief. I believe that I, I agree with you, that belief is kind of overrated or something weaker than that, like, you know, moderate confidence or thinking it's the most likely of the live options or, you know, you can fill that in in various ways. Um that, that, you know, belief-like, or you might say epistemic component of faith, I think is actually going to be a little bit stronger than the, rel the same component of hope. Because um, I think hope, you can hope that something is true, even if you think it's relatively unlikely. 
And a lot of people in the hope literature, and you you probably you know know more about this than me, but they'll they'll say really what you just need is you need to think it's possible. Um, you can also think about that as you don't have a credence of zero in it, but you have some kind of credence above zero. And what I think is cool about this is that it's a way for someone who has very, very serious doubts about God's existence um, to kind of have this posture towards God where they say, look, I think it's possible that God exists. And I think that God's existence would be a good thing. So that's the other like main component of hope is you, you think it would be a good thing or you desire for the object of hope. It might include some other stuff too. There's debates about um, whether hope is just these, the possibility, belief, and the desire, or you add more to that. But, um, but I think this posture it is, is totally appropriate. And some of my other work is on this thing called, called Pascal's Wager. I actually think this is a way of, of taking Pascal's Wager. You can say, look, I think God's existence is pretty unlikely, but possible. But I think it would be such a good thing to know the creator of the universe if there was such a being. And so hope, I think, can actually underlie a really special and important kind of commitment to God and a commitment that we can have in cases when we don't have enough evidence to have faith. One thing I like to say a lot, too, is I think commitment is way more important than certainty. I think uh, another thing religious people emphasize in addition to belief is like being certain. And if you have like any doubts at all, that's like a huge problem. Um, that's really bad, you know, whatever. Even that's a sin. I think that's just all BS. I'm sorry, but um, I, I don't think certainty is this ideal. What I think is, is, is the most important central thing is the commitment. And I think hope can underlie um, a lot of our commitments in both religious and non-religious cases. But yeah, the answer is that uh, I agree with you, so. This next question includes components of, uh, I think what I was thinking about hope and also Pascal's wager. Mm -hmm. So suppose I hope God exists, and I go to church, read the Bible, pray, and in so, in, in so doing cultivate belief in God. Or suppose I hear about Pascal's wager and I don't believe in God, but I decide that the cost-benefit analysis, it makes sense to, to cultivate belief in God. And so I you know, go through the steps of doing so. I wonder if this faces what philosophers call the wrong reasons problem. So an example of this would be, suppose I come to you and I'm like, Liz, Liz, I changed my mind, I believe in God. And you're like, what happened? You were an atheist. You're like, well, I had a dream and a unicorn in my dream totally God existed. You'd be like, well, that's a terrible reason to believe in God, right? Like, that's just a really bad reason. Obviously I'm, I'm being, over the top of the cartoonish example. Um, but isn't, the, isn't it kind of similar if like, I'm just hoping, I mean, like hope is great, but you're cultivating belief on the basis of hope or this Pascal's wager stuff where, you know, it's better to believe in God because of these practical benefits. And, you know, if you're right about it, you get them. And if you're wrong, what worst case scenario, you cultivated these virtues and a church setting, right? So this cost benefit analysis stuff really favors believing in God. Isn't that just wrong reasons though? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, okay, I think there's a couple things to say about this. So the first kind of big thing that is going to affect the answer to this depends on what exactly it means to take Pascal's wager, right? And so, you know, the basic thought is, look, if God exists and I believe in God, I'll go to heaven. That's infinitely good. If God exists and I don't believe in God, you know, maybe maybe you believe in hell, maybe you think you're annihilated, you know, we can debate about how all that works, but things seem worse. And then if God doesn't exist, then kind of what I do either way would be finite. So I should believe in God. 
So that's kind of like the really toy version of it that I think really it has to be more complex than that ultimately for to get any kind of argument off the ground. But I don't think we have to make it about directly forming a belief in God. First of all, because is that even possible, right? But then I also think wrong reason stuff can can kind of crop up. The second option we could do is make it about actions that might lead to belief. I think things are a lot more complicated here because I think what we need to do is tell a story about um, what makes actions that tend to affect our beliefs, what makes those kinds of actions rational or irrational? Um, Going to the library and like reading certain books, who you hang out with, what news sources you listen to. um, Is that just this purely epistemic thing? I think no, right? I think some truths are clearly more important than others. And so we prioritize trying to find out um, either like really practical things like where my next meeting is, or maybe trying to find out like these deep philosophical questions. Those kinds of things are a lot more important to us than like how many blades of grass are on my front lawn. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, And so I do think how we inquire, which is basically what philosophers mean by evidence gathering, I do think is is infected by these practical concerns. Um, And so that's like one way you can go about it is you can say, well, practical reasons are sort of wrong kind reasons for belief, but they um, they aren't wrong kind reasons for how we should inquire. And so we can make Pascal's wager about sort of the belief forming practices that we take. There are other people like I think Mike Rhoda, his view of Pascal's wager is almost like don't even worry about belief, like just don't even think about it. Don't try to form certain beliefs or not try to form certain beliefs just make it about action, you know, just make it about going to church and praying and hanging out with religious people and don't worry about the beliefs very much either way, sort of set those aside. And so then I think we've really hopefully dealt with the wrong kind reasons problem because of course there are practical reasons for action, you know, everyone agrees on that, right? Um, The final thing though I want to say is I actually think a lot of people that work on Pascal's Wager, they throw out belief really, really, really quickly. And they think like, it's just untenable to think about belief at all. And I think there's at least one way we can actually bring the focus back to belief in a way that isn't totally uncompelling. And that's based on this thing um, that that is known as epistemic permissivism. Epistemic permissivism is the view that sometimes evidence can allow different kinds of different belief attitude responses towards it without being without one of those being irrational. Sorry, that was a little clunky, but I'll give a quick example. Um, If we're both jurors um, to try to on, you know, we're in this courtroom, we're trying to figure out if Smith is guilty. And maybe we've heard all the same evidence about whether Smith is guilty. We've heard all the same eyewitness testimonies, we you know, know about the hard evidence at the crime scene, whose fingerprints were on which gun, whose blood was found there. And <clears throat> I conclude Smith is guilty and you conclude Smith is innocent. So we share evidence, but we disagree. I don't think we have to automatically conclude from that that one of us is irrational um, because sometimes evidence is, is complicated and it's hard to assess and there's different competing really good explanations of the evidence. And so, you know, I think even maybe me as a single juror, I might be torn about whether Smith is guilty or Smith is innocent, but both of those beliefs might be rationally available to me. Not, it's not like one of them is the, the one rational thing to believe and the other one is automatically irrational. So the reason I'm talking about permissivism is I actually think this relates to Pascal's wager in a really interesting way, which is if someone is, is, is in a situation where their evidence would make it rational for them to believe in God, or maybe be an agnostic, or maybe be an atheist. 
then I think it's a lot less clear that sort of letting the practical reasons break some kind of epistemic tie um, is problematic in the same way of you have all this evidence that God doesn't exist. Let's say that's rationally required by your evidence, but then you believe in God because a unicorn in your dream told you to, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, if belief in God is among the epistemically rational attitudes already, and then you believe in it for a practical reason, it's not at all clear that you've done something wrong because we kind of by stipulation said it's rational given your evidence. So I think at least for those who are in a permissive case about God's existence, um, I think Pascal's wager, it kind of has this different normative force than someone who's like engaging in wishful thinking and believing the opposite of what their evidence supports. So, um, so yeah, I think we don't need to, I don't think the only tenable version of Pascal's wager is one that ignores belief and makes it about action. But, but I think the wrong reasons kind of worries are really, are really interesting. It seems like that's a good way of thinking about uh, philosophical disagreements. Philosophers have been arguing about a lot of the same stuff since like Plato. The, the form of the questions change and vary in the way we think about it, maybe a little more complicated, but there's a lot of stuff that, a lot of residual disagreement from Plato. And the, um, the Phil Papers survey just came out a few weeks ago. So for people who don't know, Phil Papers is like a database of like, philosophy papers that get published pretty much around the world, I think. And a lot of professional philosophers were asked their opinions on various positions and topics. I noticed the debate between the virtue ethicists, deontologists, and consequentialists was split like a third, 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 basically. And you might look at that and just think, what a bunch of bozos, right? Like, how am I supposed to know whether it's virtue ethics or consequentialism or deontology when I go to do the right thing? Like, which moral theory do I use? And I'm wondering if maybe if you're an epistemic permissivist about this stuff, um, you don't have that problem. Because intuitively, it seems like there's a problem there, right? Like, do I throw a dart? And if I hit virtue ethics and I'm a virtue ethicist or something? Or, or what? Or if I'm a consequentialist, I'll just maximize the good, right? Yeah, I, I actually really like this way of thinking about it. Um, because I do think it kind of shows how sometimes our thinking is infected with this the idea that given our evidence, there's just one rational thing to believe. Um, and I think like, no, I just think it's often more complicated than that. And I actually think maybe not all, but like tons of philosophical uh, questions are, are, in this, are in this realm. There are cases where I think the evidence is so complicated. The debates have been going on for so long. There's so much disagreement among smart people that it just can't be the case that our evidence rationally requires all of us to be consequentialists and then all virtue ethicists and deontologists are irrational. You know what I mean? I mean, that's just super implausible to me. And actually, I think that's a really interesting way that you can kind of say, look, we can have justified philosophical beliefs, even though these debates have been raging for centuries and it's not at all clear that we're kind of converging on one view. I mean, it depends on... The philosophical disagreement too. There might be some more convergence in some than others, or at least I'm not one of those people that thinks we can never have philosophical progress. I think it's probably just slower and more difficult to track than like it is in other fields. Um, my friend in computer science said that that field is advancing so quickly that they only publish conference proceedings because as soon as you send something to a journal, there's already like new research superseding it, which is which is like the opposite of philosophy, right? Um, <laughs> excuse me. <clears throat> but yeah, so the thought is that like, Maybe because our philosophical evidence is so complex, 
maybe consequentialists and virtue ethicists, um, you know, and deontologists, maybe those are just all rational responses to the evidence. And I think, you know, one thing to say about the disagreement is I think it has the result that we probably should hold our philosophical views a little bit more tentatively. And I think we can actually even cash this out in terms of belief and credence. So even if you believe the, the philosophical view, your credence in it shouldn't be super high. Maybe your credence should be, you know, closer to 0.5 than it is to one. Um, but I definitely have the position that we can rationally have philosophical beliefs. Um, and yeah, I think using both permissivism and then the belief and credence stuff, you can you can cash it out, kind of appealing to both of those. You could even add faith, your conception of faith, right? Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this when you used the jury case, right? Like maybe you have more faith in the eyewitnesses than I do which is yeah. why you think Smith is guilty and I think he's innocent or vice versa, or whatever it was. Um, and faith would be, I mean, it's, it's, it's something over and above or outside of the evidence. It's not just an evidential issue. So that if you throw that in, that, that might be another way to cash it out too. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I think so. I think um, what permissivists, the way they, they use the term epistemic standard, but I think that's really related to what you're saying, which is that, we might just have different standards by which we're sort of weighing the evidence. So one way that might sort of play out is I have faith in these people and you don't. Uh, maybe some consequentialists have faith in Peter Singer, right? And, and I just don't, or, you know, whatever. Um, right. So I think that's a, that's a really interesting way to think about it. And I think too, there's a lot of different, like, we can weigh, like, I think, you know, having faith in testimony versus not is one way to cash this out. But you could also even think about it as like the trade-off between, you know, do I prefer the simpler theory or the one with more explanatory power? People might weigh those against each other differently and so come to different conclusions. But it's not obvious that there's one rational way that you have to weigh those against each other. And if you weigh it any other way, you're irrational. Um, another thing, too, people have talked about is how we have these two epistemic goals. We want to get true beliefs, but we also want to avoid false beliefs. So I could believe everything, but then I'd have a lot of false beliefs. I'd have a lot of true beliefs, but a lot of false ones. You know, I could also believe nothing like the skeptic. Then I would, you know, not, I wouldn't have to worry about having false beliefs, but I would also miss out on the truth. And so again, there's these different, you can weigh these against each other in different ways. Some people might be a little more epistemically risky and they say, no, I'm not a skeptic. I want to go out and get the truth. They might have a few more false beliefs, but <clears throat> the skeptic might say, I really don't want to have, uh, I really don't want to have false beliefs. And then they miss out on true beliefs. But again, there's not, I don't, it's not obvious to me that there's this one way that we have to weigh these two goals against each other. And I think that's another case where one person might believe consequentialism and the other person might withhold belief because one's a little more risky. But again, permissivism sort of falls out of that because they just weigh these goals in different ways. So my work is trying to apply economic concepts to epistemology because I think there's a lot of a lot of things that philosophers can learn from economists and vice versa. And I think that's a really great way to, that's another kind of great angle at that. But I wanted to wrap up with two questions that I ask everybody. First one's about failure. And I was talking about failure because we do not talk enough about the value of failure in our society. So I'm curious about a time that you failed, like spectacularly, either in your personal or professional life and what you learned from it. I, I think this is a really good question. And I agree with you, especially in philosophy. I think people, I mean, you put up your CV, you see all the journal acceptances, and you have no idea that paper was rejected 12 times before it was accepted at that journal or whatever. I um, mean, one thing I've actually seen people do 
is they put up like their failure CV where they just list all the rejections they got. They list all the journals the paper was rejected from, the grants they applied to they didn't get. And I actually think that's really helpful and constructive. And I think you don't realize like even these big name, like famous people, they get a lot of rejections, you know? So I, I, I agree. And I think I mean, a part of it is just the internet and social media. It's so easy to post the good things and you think everyone's life is better than yours, but that's just because that's what they're posting about. So, um, you know, I want to even say too, like yesterday, I was like trying to work out this paper. I could not figure it out. Then I just got this journal rejection of this paper that's been rejected like 10 times. And I, I mean, I want to talk about another instance too, but I just think like, like just feeling discouraged and feeling like a failure is definitely still a part of my life. Um, and I think that's helpful too. Like, I think people think like, oh, once you're like a professor or once, you know, once you hit this certain threshold, then you never struggle with it anymore. And I just want to say that's not true. I also think in a way that can be discouraging, but in a way, hopefully it's encouraging. It's not like this thing that only you're going through. Like, I think lots and lots of people go through it. Um, but I think in terms of like reflecting on, on my life and my career, one of the biggest failures, but that I think was then turned into something that um, ended up being really helpful was when um, I failed my comprehensive exams at Notre Dame. So we take these history exams. We do two of them. One is on ancient philosophy. One is on early modern. I think that's right. Oh, and then maybe it's ancient and medieval is the first one and then early modern. And actually it's funny now. I can't even remember which one I failed. I failed one of them, but it's funny because at the time it just felt like my life was over. And, and, you know, now I'm like, I failed one of them and I don't remember which one. Um, but this was, you know, the first year of my PhD program. So you take them the summer after the first year, first year is hard. And you're like, you go from being one of the smartest people at your school to being just immersed in this, you know, ocean of genius. You feel so much imposter syndrome, which is like, I'm the only one that doesn't belong here. Everyone else is so smart. I don't know what I'm doing. I just, I'm a fraud. Um, and the funny thing is once you like say this, like a lot of people, if not like everyone is actually feeling it, but before that comes out, you feel like you're the only one. So, you know, I'm going through all this. I'm this like first year grad student. And then I like fail comps and I was just like, oh, this is so horrible. So I had to retake them and it was like really discouraging and really hard. And I was definitely, I was very upset. Um, so and, and because it was a necessary part of, of the program too, um, it just kind of threw a wrench in a lot of things. What I ended up doing was actually, I was able to retake them that Christmas break, which was really nice. So I didn't have to like retake them the whole next summer. Um, but I think honestly, it was just a huge wake up call for me. And I think before that, so one thing I tell a lot of people about grad school is you have so much free time and you basically set your whole own schedule you don't, it's not like a nine to five where you come in at nine, you leave at five. There's people there. They're kind of making sure you're doing work. Like you can literally work whenever you want. And people joke that like a lot of people work nine to five grad students work five to nine. <laughs> um, kind of true. Right. Uh, people just like do random stuff and, and don't get work done and play video games. And then it's five o'clock and you're like, I should probably do a little bit of work. And then you work till nine and then you're like, and you go surf the internet until 3am, you know, but like I had work habits a lot like that, especially my first year of grad school. And I was just sleeping till noon, staying up super late, not really like saving all my term papers until the very last minute, you know, all this stuff. And I think failing this exam really made me rethink things. Um, and so what I started doing, I joined like a, a writing group, which met every morning at 8.30 a.m., which was 
really early for me. I know a lot of people, especially people with kids are like, what? But like, that was actually way early for me. But, um, and then I really tried to stop working around five and then I would go to the gym and I just think my, my work habits got so much better. I started tracking, tracking my time, tracking what I was doing. And I really think that is what turned me around. And then I think that led to basically what I ended up doing was I started sending the paper papers to journals in my third year, but I was only able to have those ready because I had been writing and really developed these much better work habits. And then as, as I sent those papers to journals, I got tons of rejections, like, like dozens a year, but I was able to get a few publications before I was on the job market, which then I think was, is really one of the big keys to getting a job. Um, and so it sucked to fail. I'm glad I passed, but I took them the second time. But I don't know that I would have had that turnaround in my work habits if I hadn't kind of had that wake up call, which is like, you have to stop, you know, staying up so late and not really working during the day. And, you know, I, I know that different work habits work for, uh, for people. Not everyone should work nine to five. You know, not everyone is going to be the same here. But I think figuring out what works for you and taking breaks are like super, super, super important. That's another thing that grad students are really bad about too. They're kind of half working all the time and they don't take weekends off. And it's like, I think also another thing I really started doing was trying to take at least one day a week off and preferably two. I think that helped a lot too. What do you want people to say about your work in a hundred years? And what do you want on your tombstone? How do you want people to think about you, if at all? <laughs> I like the if at all, that's interesting. I guess too. I mean, that's a good point. Like, I don't know if I necessarily want people to think about me, but one thing I hope is that there are certain ideas that I can put out there that can change the way that people think about things. Um, and, and I think in general, what this looks like and, and, you know, so being a philosopher, part of what you have to do is write papers that you send to journals. They're sometimes published. If they're published, it's very sad. They're read by like five to 10 people. You know, I mean, they're just not it's not something, and on a lot of people, even if they're interested in philosophy, they're not going to go and read these philosophy journals, right? They're not, they, I mean, they might not even know what they are. They're really inaccessible and use all this technical language and whatever. And so one of the big things that I want to do is make philosophy accessible to a wide audience. I think philosophy has a lot to offer. Um, I think both practical and less practical. Um, I think practically, it helps with clear thinking, it helps with clear writing, helps with clear reasoning. I think a lot of the political polarization that we're experiencing is because people don't know how to disagree well, and they don't know um, what's a good argument for something and what's not, you know? I think philosophy has a lot to say about that, and I actually think Oh, there's a lot of bad things I could say about philosophers, but I actually think they're a pretty good model of disagreement because it's so rampant throughout philosophy, like we were talking about before. Um, so that's the practical side. The impractical side is this. I don't see philosophy as something that is only interesting if it like helps you with your job or helps you build a bridge or something. I think that it's something in some ways that's kind of like music or poetry. It's, it's good in and of itself to think about and to wrestle with and to think about these deep questions. Uh, you know, what's the nature of morality? What makes something morally right or morally wrong? Um, what exists and what doesn't exist? Does God exist? Do we have free will? I mean, I could go on, but I don't think that these questions only matter if they have this really, really particular application to the real world. I think in the same way that listening to music is good in and of itself, or reading a beautiful poem is good in and of itself. I think thinking, thinking about these questions 
is good in and of itself. And I think it contributes to our flourishing. Um, and I think we're built to think about these deep life questions. And so all that to say, one of the things I want to do with my life is to make philosophy something that's for the everyday person and to make arguments that philosophers are thinking about things that are accessible for all of us. Um, in terms of, you know, the tombstone question, that's like such a hard question. Um, but I do think, I guess there's two things I want to say. The first is like faith is really important to me. And like we talked about, it's faith in God, also faith, faith in other people, faith in the things around me. And I think faith, again, it's just this thing that helps us keep our commitments, even when we, when we have doubts or receive counter evidence. And so faith is really important to me personally. It's also a big theme of my life and work. Um, and so maybe something related to that would want I would want to be on my tombstone. Um, and there's a passage from the Bible where um, Jesus says, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. I've always kind of liked that. It's like, you know, you, it's not saying you're perfect. It's not saying you didn't make mistakes, but your life, you were a faithful person. You were faithful to God. You're faithful to people around you. And, and that's kind of what, what I want to do with my life. So, um, so yeah, I think something about faith I would want on my tombstone and it's hard to say exactly what, but it's a really, really good question. <laughs> I always think of philosophy as part elegant and part practical, mm. just like this interview. Thanks for coming on the show, Liz. Thanks so much for having me.